Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. Today's episode is brought to you by Impact 360 Institute, who create life-changing experiences for young people. Go to impact360.org to find out more. Well, as I said in the opening, we exist on this podcast to equip you to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity. So those are going to be essential gospel issues. But sometimes it's those secondary issues, those issues that faithful Christians agree to disagree about that can cause disunity among brothers and sisters that should otherwise be unified. So today I'm going to be talking with a special guest, Joe Miller, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a new book that he's written on that topic. His heart is to promote and maintain that unity between cessationists, those are uh, some of you who believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit have not continued, specifically the sign gifts like prophecy and tongues, that those have ceased, whereas we want to maintain unity with continuationists who believe that those sign gifts have continued. Uh, These are issues that are tough to figure out for many people, and so we're going to discuss how we can have better unity between those two groups. And so uh, one of the things I really loved about this conversation I had with Joe is that we talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What's his role in our lives? And we talked about a definition of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is this something that happens later after you become a Christian, or does it happen at conversion? I'll be honest with you, and I'll ask everyone to keep an open mind. This is a topic where my personal theology has changed a bit after my faith crisis when I began to really dig into these topics for myself and think critically about them. What I believe the Bible teaches on that has changed a little bit. We're going to discuss that today. So if this is a topic that you have questions about, you're going to love this conversation and you're going to want to pick up Joe's book. Uh, We also want to let you know that our Unshaken Conference is coming to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills on May 6th, uh, just a little less than a month away. We're very excited. Go to unshakenconference.com to register for that. Please invite all your friends, anybody in the Southern California area. Also subscribe to our Unshaken Faith podcast. This is where my friend Natasha Crane and I give you weekly short 15 to 20 minute episodes tackling current cultural topics. Really want you to hear our most recent episode where we talked about standing strong and not bowing our knee to the cultural gods, specifically the cultural god of that pride activism. We talk about the Philadelphia Flyers hockey player Ivan Provorov and how he declined to participate in the warm-up activities on Pride Night for the Philadelphia Flyers where they were going to be wearing jerseys decorated in pride theme and wrapping their hockey sticks in rainbow color tape. And his team and the NHL backed him, and there have been Uh, more developments in that story where more players and even entire teams have opted out of that that event. So we talk about that. Don't want you to miss it. That's our most recent episode. Subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast. And of course, for this one, if you're listening on audio platforms, you guys have been doing such a great job of going over to Apple, Google, Spotify, rating and reviewing the podcast. That really helps get it into the hands of more people. And if you're watching on YouTube, subscribing, commenting, all that stuff helps us out so much. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast. And I'm very excited now to bring you to my conversation with Joe Miller. Well, Joe, it's great to have you back on the show. As always, you've been on a couple times before to talk about, oh gosh, what did we talk about? Eugenics. We talked about Adam and Eve and mytho history and all that stuff. But we've got a very different topic today. And I'm kind of excited to discuss this with you because I think you have such a great theological mind, but you also have such a pastor's heart. And we're going to be talking about how Christians can discuss 
what we might call secondary doctrines or even third tier doctrines without canceling each other. And, you know, sadly, one of the things that I see so often with quote unquote discernment ministries is that sometimes they'll take a secondary doctrine and make it a primary doctrine and Mm -hmm. then just sort of cancel every Christian who doesn't agree with their very specific view on that secondary doctrine. So maybe as we just kind of lay the groundwork for this, of course, we're going to mention your book, which is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism and Christian Unity. Um, First, maybe just tell us why you decided to write this book um, and, you know, what led up to that? Yeah, you know, thanks again for it's great to be back with you, uh, Alicia, and it's just uh, fabulous to be on the show and see all the amazing things that you're accomplishing. And I think this book does provide a foundation for a conversation like we talked about, not just about this specific issue of the Holy Spirit, but of controversial issues. So yeah, I look forward to that. So this book, man, it started years ago. I grew up uh, I'm sort of a theological mutt and denominational mutt when it comes to my background. Grew up in United Methodist Church. Uh, it really grew my faith at a secular university, Penn State, when I was at school. But I ended up feeling called to do ministry full time. And so I went to Oral Roberts University, which, as folks may know, is like sort of the center of the Pentecostal charismatic universe for university. Yeah, I had tons of friends go there. Tons of my friends yeah. went there from out of high school. Yeah. Yeah. But originally, I was actually going to go to Dallas Seminary. Uh, I'd never even heard the word seminary before. I didn't know what that was until I was, you know, oh, going to go. This is where you're supposed to go. And I couldn't have told you the difference between a Baptist or Pentecostal, an Arminian or a Calvinist. Uh, I just ended up going to RU because it was one year less for the MDiv. And my sister lived there. I could sleep on her couch. So I got a job. But in the (laughs) midst of that, um, is when I really got tuned into this concept of who the Holy Spirit is, what's this role of spirit baptism in our life, and of course issues like tongues and you know what are the you know when does this happen in our life became the the core issue. Is it something that happens in salvation or is it something that is a later experience? And somebody going into the pastoral ministry really for me it just I saw the division division and divisiveness around this particular theology. And I just wanted to understand it, but also present it in a way that maybe, is there a way we can stop being so divisive at the church uh, about this issue? And hopefully, even if there's disagreement, still find unity in Christ. That's really good. And we do want to be clear for anybody watching or listening that this debate is not actually about cessationism versus continuationism. Mm -hmm. In other words, what we're going to be discussing with spirit baptism is not, we're not deciding between did the gifts of the spirit continue or did they not? Like Mm -hmm. that's a totally actually separate issue. Um, Mm -hmm. So what this has to do is more specifically with spirit baptism and hopefully what, because you know, I was really, I told you this, Joe, I was kind of hesitant to do a whole episode (laughs) on uh, a a theological topic that really is secondary. And I want to be really clear with people. When I say secondary, I don't mean unimportant. I think there are secondary, and I think you you would probably agree with this, Joe, there are secondary issues that are very important that are, I mean, maybe they won't affect your, directly affect your salvation, but it's important that we think them through biblically and that we mm-hmm. land on correct as best we can, you know, land on correct conclusions. But typically these doctrines are second and third tier and even fourth tier because sometimes the Bible isn't as clear on certain things as it is on others. Certainly there mm-hmm. wouldn't be this divide between Calvinists and non-Calvinists if, if it was just super easy to read yeah. the Bible and figure out predestination versus free will, right? So um, maybe you could give us some sort of foundational comments on how, like, let's, before we even get to spirit baptism, how do you think through the question yeah. of what's primary versus what might be secondary and how those even might vary in levels of importance? Yeah. I think the important part to think about, Alicia, is this. Um, I think every doctrine that we look at, for the most part, the challenge comes because it can cross over, it can bleed over, right? There can be primary parts of this that are core to the Christian faith. And then there can be parts of that or implications of that doctrine, or the way we live that out that might become second tier, third tier type doctrines. So for example, let's take the concept of the Trinity. I think the the idea that there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, has been a historic doctrine in the Christian church. I think that's a primary doctrine. Mm-hmm. But say somebody, well, I illustrate it with a, you know, a three-leaf clover. I illustrate it. I like the the idea of um, the triple point of uh, water, you know, and sort of a, I'm a sciencey guy in that sort of background. Mm-hmm. So 
but somebody said, well, no, no, if you illustrate it that way, you're not a true Christian. It's like, okay, well, wait a second. Now, now, now we're getting into a second or third tier type thing is we can all affirm a core doctrine. But yet, say maybe the way we discuss it or the way we experience it or we talk about it might be different. And I think this issue of spirit baptism falls along those lines. Uh, the idea of spirit baptism, I think, is a core primary doctrine. Mm. But the way we've encountered or experienced the Holy Spirit, sometimes the way we talk about it, we bring in second tier or third tier things and make them primary. Uh, so I think that's where the challenge comes in is not just discerning which doctrines are primary, secondary, but understanding that a lot of doctrines bleed over across that. And if we're not careful in thinking these things through, we end up alienating one another for reasons that are really not core to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good. Let's talk a little bit about heresy, because I've thought a lot about this over the past few years, and I think... You know, there can be an approach to it where people might say, oh, you said the wrong thing. That's heresy. You're not a Christian yeah. or, you know, something along those lines. But there's I think like I, I like the way you framed that, because there could be somebody who says, no, I, I believe that God is one and that he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then maybe they use an example that might bottom out into modalism or some kind of yeah. other ancient heresy unintentionally. Yeah. They don't mean to do that, but it's, you know, maybe they misspoke or maybe they are just misunderstanding a doctrine that they want to understand rightly, but just haven't had the good teaching, yeah. like how would you think through that question of like when does when does heresy become disqualifying? What's the nature of it? And you know, obviously, somebody could understand something wrongly and still be in the faith, but but just needs discipleship, or they might yeah. just need some good teaching. Yeah, so I go back to the original concept of heresy itself. You know, heresy really just means divisiveness, division, mm. and that's what heretical doctrine is. It's doctrine that divides unnecessarily. Now think about Paul. You know, he talked to the church at Galatia after having this Jerusalem council and everyone was dividing over whether people should be circumcised or should the Gentiles have to follow these rituals and stuff. So after Jerusalem council meets, he writes this letter to the church at Galatia. And he, he has this interesting part that always struck me uh, as just, wow, what does this even mean? He said, you know, you keep dividing. Some say you're of Apollos, some say of Paul, some say of Jesus. So what, this is what he's saying though. He's a, some are dividing because you're following after individuals. And I'm thinking, how can you be divisive and say you're following after Jesus? Because I think that's what he's done here. He's saying you're dividing over whether you follow Paul or Apollos or Jesus. So we can even have doctrines about Jesus that create division unnecessarily because we're saying, well, I follow the real Jesus. You follow the fake Jesus. And then we invent sort of Jesus in our image. Mm. And then we sort of impose that on others. So we can use anything as that source of division in the church. And so really it comes down to defining what is unity and what constitutes that for the church. And so I think a lot of times we make the mistake that thinking unity is about the same doctrine when it's not. Unity is about the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So all we do through our doctrine is maintain the unity that has been given to us for our philosopher friends ontologically. You know, we have this essence of us that's been remade in the image of Christ and that gives us unity. And then we just have to live it out faithfully. Mm. Okay. So that's the approach that I kind of take in terms of these doctrines that we would think are divisive. And I understand it this in terms of relational side of it too, is that if the blood of Jesus Christ was enough to cover over my sin of, you know, lust or greed or anger or gluttony or whatever that might be, then the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cover over my bad doctrine and my bad theology. Mm -hmm. So just because somebody has a divisive doctrine doesn't mean they're not our brother and sister in Christ. Right. That's a separate conversation. And Paul was always careful to always take people at the confession of the mouth. If you say you're a believer, I take you at your word. But mm -hmm. if you are a believer, then I hold you to a certain standard. And that is one that will you be faithful to what we learn in scripture and will you teach in a way that doesn't create divides unnecessarily. 
And I think, too, it might be wise to bring in here some categories. So there are, uh, of course, there's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we know that there's going to be wheat and tares mm -hmm. growing up together in the same building, even, you know, in the same church service. Yeah. There are wheat and tares. You went to church this past Sunday. There were wheat and tares in the pews. There were real Christians, genuine Christians. And, you know, there were tares, Christians who people who might even think they're Christians or they they're not, you know, they're not Christians. But there's like this sort of mixture going to go on and that then the Lord will judge and kind of divide yeah. the, all of that stuff out. But it is an interesting point you bring up about div divisiveness, because in Romans 1, uh, 16, 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary mm -hmm. to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And I think that that is an important verse, because what Paul is actually saying here is it's not the people who are calling out false doctrine. It's the people bringing false doctrine in that mm -hmm. are the ones that are being called divisive. So it's the false teachers that Paul is criticizing yes. for being divisive, not the believers who are saying, wait a second, you know, that thing you just said is really outside of the gospel or that's really different. Because, you know, often when you have a ministry like mine where yeah. you're sort of calling out false teachings, you know, I mm -hmm. and I, I always try to, to say this, but... I'm not necessarily talking about the person in the pew who's confused. I'm actually talking about the yeah. teachers, the people who are teaching this as Christianity, something that's not Christianity, and knowing, and it's actually out of love for the sheep, knowing that there are people in their pews that are being confused by these things. And so I think that's a really good thing to bring up. There's unity, mm -hmm. but um, maybe talk a little bit about because our culture loves that word unity, and it's almost like it's a unity at all costs. So how would you how would yeah. you think about that question of like what is biblical unity, and yeah. is it is it unity just makes you know so we just agree to disagree on everything or what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a really great uh, verse you bring up and, and a context for understanding this whole discussion of unity versus division, what that means. I, I think the challenge for us Christians is that when we make unity about a set of doctrinal standards, now, be, folks, be patient. I'm not saying we shouldn't have doctrinal right. standards. So just kind of go with the flow <laughs> for a second. Yeah, yeah. So um, when we make our unity based on those doctrinal standards, then the, then the tension is when we hear Paul talking about pursue unity, live in unity, all those things, we think it's then necessary to compromise doctrine to keep unity. But if we recognize that unity is actually a work of the Spirit, unity has been accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection, then he sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us into the person of Jesus Christ, makes us one family, one body. This is Paul's essential argument in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13, really the whole section there, because the church was dividing over who had this gift or who had that or who was most important, who was the upfront speaker, who was the person doing the helps thing. They're finding all kinds of reasons to celebrate human leaders and elevate them above the person of Christ. And so he talks about this one gift of the Holy Spirit. And this one gift has many giftings. I think the Greek in there, uh, Doran, is really best translated as giftings. There's one gift, many giftings. A lot of times you translate it manifestations. So the things that we do uh, to honor God with our life, when we're expressing the presence of God to the world through the manifestations or the giftings of the Spirit or through our teaching of doctrines, what those things are are expressions of the one Christ who we serve and who has united us. So when we begin with this sort of uh, fundamental nature of who we are, that again, that ontological nature of being, when we begin there as un unity is that, then our goal is to live out and align ourselves with that unity. Then we're not struggling. Then we can hopefully make some better decisions along the way. Well, I can't compromise on, say, the, the resurrection of Jesus. I can't compromise on his virgin birth or the Trinity or God is, you know, the sort of ex nihilo creator of all that we see. Because I realize that those aren't things that I'm creating. Those are things that reflect the nature of the one God whom I serve and who's uh, remade me, made me in his image and remade me in his image. And so if I pursue it that way, it helps us make that dividing line a little more clear so we can decide, okay, is this 
a me thing that I think we have to unify this, or is this truly a God thing that I'm centering my faith and practice on? Hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, that's good. All right, guys. Well, I want to tell you about our first sponsor of the day. It's our friends at Good Ranchers. There are so many reasons I love Good Ranchers. Number one, I love that they're Christians. I love that they hold to biblical values. They're not giving money to woke causes. I love that all of the meat is grown, harvested, and packaged here in America, which really helps American farmers. But this month, you've got three really good reasons to subscribe to Good Ranchers. First of all, if you subscribe in this month, you're going to get free bacon for an entire year. Now, this is heritage breed pork. This is high-quality bacon. That's $240 worth of free bacon over the course of a year. Also, the second reason that you're going to want to subscribe this month is that you will lock in your price. As we've seen, there's inflation. Our grocery bills are going up each month. But you get to lock in that price, which will never change for the life of your subscription. That is an amazing deal. And the third reason is this is the highest quality meat in America. This is pasture-raised beef, grass-fed, heritage breed pork, better than organic chicken. They triple-chim the chicken, which... I'm telling you guys, it will decrease your prep time by so much. I love just opening up my package of those triple-trimmed chicken breasts and just putting them right in the pan. It is so great. So go to GoodRanchers.com. Don't forget, you're going to get free bacon for a year. And for an additional $20 off your first box, you're going to put in the code ALISA. So that's GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ALISA. Get free bacon for a year and $20 off any box. And we are so excited. We want you to join the Good Ranchers family. That's GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ALISA. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. I think there's, you know, growing up charismatic, I always thought that people who weren't charismatic didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Like, that's what I thought the belief was. And then, you know, after I was around a lot more cessationists, I realized, well, no, that's not at all what they they believe. And then, of course, they always thought that charismatics think that the Holy Spirit's like a genie or something like that, or that that's what the belief is. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings on both sides. And as I really studied through it, I realized, I think actually charismatics and cessations are a lot closer together in what they believe primarily than than they may realize. So um, let's talk about the theology of the Holy Spirit. This is called uh, pneumatology, if you want the fancy word out there for our viewers and listeners. But let's start with just the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What or who is the Holy Spirit? So yeah, we, we look at the Holy Spirit as Christians and understand that there is one God, uh, in three persons, the same uh, divine essence or nature or being to that God, but he exists eternally uh, in, uh, in three uncreated persons, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see that the work of God is present from beginning in Genesis 1 throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so through time, we have had clarity about that doctrine as God revealed more and more of himself from Genesis through the book of Revelation. We get more clarity on that. So it's a doctrine that certainly matured uh, as God uh, revealed more and more about himself. And then the church realized later, hey, this is a really core to the, our, our worship of the one true God. So the Holy Spirit, then again, is just that third person you know, one of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Yeah, and I love, um, I think it's very interesting, too, that as we learn from Genesis 1 and also John 1, the Trinity was present at creation. So Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created Mm -hmm. the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then, of course, we go over to John 1, and we see that in the beginning was the Word, Mm -hmm. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So even just from the very beginning, we we yeah. see the doctrine of the Trinity essentially arise. Yeah. Um, of course, we didn't have the word Trinity, and there is no word Trinity in the Bible. Um, but that's because the Trinity was really a, a theological solution to what the Bible talked about when it was speaking of mm-hmm. the nature of God. It was really the way um, theologians were able to sort of, uh, you know, 
solve the tension of the Bible talking about there being one God, and yet mm-hmm. you see the Holy Spirit being referred to as God, the Son being referred to as God, and the Father being referred to as God all in Scripture. So making sense of that, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity. And mm-hmm. I honestly think that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit might be one of those really overlooked things in the church mm-hmm. because people don't seem to know a whole lot about what the yeah. Spirit does. And so let's let's move into that. We know the Holy Spirit is uh, is God, he, eternally existing. Uh, so what does he do? And you mentioned, you know, of course, we read about him in the Old Testament. In fact, there are instances when this, you, you see, um, I don't have the wording exactly right in front of me, but, you know, you see the Spirit come up and on someone in yeah, the Old Testament. Come upon. Come yeah. upon. So what did that mean? When, when the Bible said the Holy Spirit came upon someone, what did that mean? As yeah. In the Old Testament, then we'll move to the, yeah. to the New. Yeah, so one of those key works uh, of the Holy Spirit in the scope of uh, God's interaction with, you know, from Abraham through all of Israel through the New Testament is inspiration of what we hold to be scripture, Um, inspiration of the prophets to bring a message of redemption or repentance to uh, Israel. So uh, we, we find in the New Testament that the inspiration that was given to Moses, for example, uh, was from the Holy Spirit. So, but all of these um, moments of inspiration, these moments of divine empowerment, if you will, in a, in a variety of circumstances, they were all sort of transitory in the Old Testament. In other words, the Holy Spirit came upon for some moment of, again, uh, empowerment or inspiration. And then the Holy Spirit was would leave in a sense, right? God was still present, but his specific purpose for coming upon David uh, or Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah to give this this moment of power uh, was, again, transitory. And then as we get into the New Testament, uh, we see this idea that that, uh, God, God had promised, this goes back to the book of Joel, actually, that uh, that a new covenant would be made, right? And that his spirit would no longer sort of be this sort of transitory presence, but the spirit of God would be a permanent transformative presence in the life of everybody, not just for a select few like a king or a prophet, but for all of God's people. And so the Old Testament was select people, Uh, transitory moments for a specific divine purpose. New Testament, it is supposed to be all people, not just the presence of the Spirit upon them, but indwelling them and transforming them. And of course, the fullness of that doctrine we don't get until we understand, you know, the idea that the Holy Spirit uh, joins us all to the cross of Christ and how that plays out through Jesus, the fulfillment of being the fulfillment of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. All right. Well, I want to tell you about our sponsor for today, Impact 360 Institute. We've talked about Impact 360 on the podcast many times. You all know how much I love Impact 360, how much I believe in the ministry that they are doing. We are living in a culture that is so chaotic. It's chaotic morally. It's chaotic spiritually. We're seeing increased levels of depression and anxiety, especially among Gen Z, which are about kids that are about 22 years and under. Well, Impact 360 exists to create life-changing experiences for students to help equip them to engage their faith in this increasingly hostile culture, at least a culture that's hostile to Christian beliefs and values. And it is so difficult for Gen Z who are being indoctrinated with so many messages from culture. So that's where Impact 360 comes in to come alongside families to help disciple students, teach them apologetics, theology, and uh, community building, teaching them how to live their faith out. They do this through different experiences. So for the summertime, there's the Propel experience, which is a one-week. It's a great introduction to the Ministry of Impact 360. There's a two-week experience called Immersion and a nine-month gap year program. I go and speak every year at all of the experiences. It's one of the highlights of my year. So go to impact360.org if you have a student in your life who you think might benefit from their wonderful, wonderful ministry. Go to impact impact360.org. Use the code podcast for $50 off. That's impact360.org. Use the code podcast for $50 off. (music) 
So let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because this is sort of yeah. a very could, you know, can potentially be a divisive topic. Mm-hmm. Um, first, let's just talk about what is it and mm-hmm. then maybe talk through some of the different ways people view it. And then you can give us your conclusion from yeah. your study on that on this topic. And so what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Maybe we'll start there. Yeah. So this gets the, the to the divisive part, right? <laughs> Where potentially people are like, okay, here's where I'm going to hate this guy or I'm going to love this guy. Uh, and here's where I'm going to cancel Alicia or not, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the thing, guys, is we know, like, I know, I'm very aware that we have charismatics, sensationists, we have Calvinists, Arminians, non-Calvinists. We have lots of different theological backgrounds watching. And, and I've always tried really hard to, to sort of foster that unity between us. And so please, if you disagree with yeah. Joe's conclusion, and I actually, my conclusion is also Joe's conclusion, that doesn't mean, we're, you know, we don't think people are saved yeah. or that you're like in such grave error mm-hmm. that, you know, it's just, it's yeah. just, um, we're just trying to model disagreement and maybe try to persuade yeah. in a way that you would find inviting. Yeah. There is a way to navigate this, I think, without entering in that divisiveness. So I'll, I'll lay it out and hopefully people give me a chance to express this, uh, before they, you know, go all crazy. But uh, <laughs> so here's what I, here's what I see. The old Testament, uh, give, tells Israel there's a, it's called the promise of the father. That's often a terminology that I believe is synonymous with spirit baptism, that there's this promise of the father, that there would be, uh, an internalizing of the external law, the truth that God had given in law, the ability, the capacity to follow in faithfulness, would be internalized to all people. This promise of a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And so we have all these sort of beautiful metaphors and all this imagery in the Old Testament, a variety of language. And I outline a lot of that in the book because it's really critical understanding this specific New Testament discussion of spirit baptism. So all of these sort of phrases and metaphors are used together along with spirit baptism to uh, describe the how God will usher in his new covenant of promise with his people. And so then we get to the New Testament and, you know, Acts 2, 8, 9 and 10 and 19 are always these key passages where we see the Holy Spirit uh, baptizing different groups of people. Right. And so what we discover, and this is the short version, you can ask questions about, you know, maybe specific passages Mm -hmm. and depending how far deeply you want to go into that. Um, So what I take away from all of those passages is this, the Holy Spirit was given now and beginning in Acts 2, again, 8, 9, 10, 19, um, was given as this as the uh, seal upon the salvation the promise of the father that was given uh, in the old testament now has been made real and what we see jesus final words to his disciples he said uh, you know go from here in jerusalem go throughout you know from jerusalem judea samaria to the othermost parts of the world and 2891019 basically gives us from jerusalem judea samaria the uttermost parts of the world and so what we find is that the spirit baptized all of these diverse groups of people, whether they were separated by theology or culture or language, there's this sense that the spirit now comes in and dwells these different groups of people, baptizes them, immerses them into the death and life of Christ, such that old divisions between Jew and Gentile, for example, were all done away with. Uh, ethnic strife between different groups is done away with because that dividing line mm. has been broken down. The Holy Spirit has united us as one family, as one people. And so this is the thrust of what's happening in Acts uh, and, the, and the purpose of what we see. Uh, for, you know, just for example, really quickly, you know, Peter, uh, this is the big thing that happens with the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, 11 uh, through there. And, you know, he's gets this dream of a vision and the, and the clouds part and the big picnic blanket comes down from heaven and all the foods there. And God says, eat. And he says, no, I've never eaten any of this unclean food. And three times he has this vision. But eventually, he, you know, he said, OK, all right, I get it. But he still didn't get it. So this guy, a Gentile, comes to him and says, hey, come to my house. Tell us about Jesus. He goes to his house, travels up to his house, and he starts talking about the salvation of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit baptizes this family, what Peter says, just like it happened for us on the day of Pentecost. And then he says, well, who was I to withhold water baptism? Because what he realized is, and think about this is this is 
more than a decade after Pentecost. And Peter still didn't understand that the gospel was for the Gentiles. He mm. still couldn't overcome his, you know, upbringing and his Jewish mentality of how to think about the promise of God. I mean, it's something he, Jesus told him, but he didn't fully fathom it. Even at this point, 10 years later, the mm. church was still learning that there was this, this nature of unity that came by being engrafted, brought into, made alive baptized into the death and life of Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole book of Acts is leading us towards. That's the thrust of Acts, at least. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, of course, there's there's a large segment of uh, Christians that would, that would argue that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like a secondary event. It's something mm -hmm. that happens yeah. later, after you're a Christian. And then, mm -hmm. so in other words, there's there could be a lot of Christians walking around who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that a little bit. Why does that mm -hmm. view concern you? Why, why, you yeah. know, why? What would you say say to that? Yeah. Well, I, I tell folks this. This is where it gets really thorny, and I'll tell folks this. Um, I have no reason to doubt your experience and encounter that you might have had a dynamic encounter with the Holy Spirit after you were saved. And maybe it was manifest in speaking in tongues or in some prophetic message. Uh, that is really, to me, uh, I don't have to go against, I don't have to counter that. Okay, this gets back to what you brought up. Because I'm not necessarily a cessationist. I'm not really a cessationist. I'm not a continuationist either. Maybe on your Patreon group after, I'll, I'll tell you the difference between those. <laughs> but I don't want to get too sidetracked. But, um, but we don't have to have a position on that to understand what's happening to answer this question. So I don't have to discount your experience. Matter of fact, I hope I don't have to discount your experience. What I will say, and I trace this out in the first half of the book, is I look through the history of this doctrine of spirit baptism. And the idea that spirit baptism is a post-salvation experience uh, that must be um, uh, affirmed or confirmed by the manifestation of some miraculous sign gift, like speaking in tongues or doing a miracle, uh, depending on if you're Pentecostal or charismatic, that really that doctrine doesn't come uh, take shape until the late 1800s, really 1901, with a guy named Charles Parham, and it's not until really 1916 when you get through the Assemblies of God that one of the many different opinions about spirit baptism, and there were many different ones, even amongst those who we would call early Pentecostals and charismatics, that sort of the Assemblies of God took sort of dominance numerically in their particular view. But there was still even amongst charismatics, Pentecostals, I'm using those terms a little loosely right now, but that, that group of that family of people, there was a lot of disagreements theologically. And so here's what I realized is that what I realized is we end up taking this terminology of spirit baptism and using that to create division. So I don't think mm -hmm. our experience of the spirit has to create the division. I think the way we're using our terminology for me is what ends up creating the division. Because what you have throughout history is guys like there's somebody called Smith Wigglesworth. And I'd never heard of him until I went to Oral Roberts University. And this guy was celebrated in my classes as some great, uh, you know, sort of forerunner and advancer of this Pentecostal charismatic message. But Wigglesworth was a very divisive guy. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. he talks about those who have faith in Christ are basically like a, um, a, you know, sort of a withering or dying plant that doesn't have, you know, the power to do anything. It's weak and useless. Only once you have this second experience, can you truly love God? Can you truly love his word or walk in obedience? And you get this language that creates two classes of Christians. One who's, well, I'm saved, but being saved really does nothing except, okay, I'm not going to hell anymore. But there's no power in the cross yeah. of Christ. There's no, there's no capacity through Jesus Christ alone to give me the power to do what God has asked me to do. I need this second experience. And if you haven't had that experience, you're not really going to experience the fullness of salvation. And so to me, when we take that terminology and take somebody's experience of the Spirit and say that my experience is now the center of everybody's gospel, that's where we ran into trouble. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's well, and, the rough. And Smith was, Wigglesworth, that. wasn't he the one that would like punch people? And yeah. was, there was like a very abusive kind of like yeah. he would quote unquote heal people. Um, yeah. He killed a guy once at a healing ceremony. Yeah. Uh, killed him. Healing yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. So there was a guy who came up and this is, uh, I actually learned about this class. I'm called Signs and Wonders where I learned to do miracles. Uh, oh. Joke on the inside joke. <laughs> 
um, for oh, are you people, you know what I'm saying. Um, so, but we had this class called Signs and Wonders and we talked about this stuff. But yeah, this is where I was introduced to this guy. And he had a healing service one time where a guy came up, was complaining of pain in his stomach and Wigglesworth punches the guy in the stomach and the guy falls over in pain. Um, and uh, people come up to check on him. The guy says, no, leave him alone, leave him alone. The, the spirit is ministering to him. And so this happens multiple times, but by the end of the service, they come up and they realize the guy had died. So he probably ruptured mm. his spleen or he had wow. something going on. I don't remember all the medical conditions involved, yeah. but yeah, he ends up punching him and you know, make something really bad worse. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, hardly the bastion of, uh, you know, good theology right. would want us to model. But it's that sort of divisiveness around the theology of spirit baptism that I want us to, that, that I really try to focus on in the book uh, and how we live out that thing. And so it doesn't have to disqualify our experience, but right. I'm trying to make sure our terminology doesn't create division uh, that's unnecessary. Yeah, that was something that when, you know, this was a part of my rebuilding after my faith crisis was that, you know, I'd always grown up uh, being taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a second event. It was something, in fact, I went to a a church camp, you know, and, and I was a Christian and they would give a call, like, do you want to become baptized in the Holy Spirit? And you go back in a room and they pray for you and, you know, mm -hmm. you, you supposedly are are, I don't know if they would word it that that's, I, every charismatic I've talked to who believes in a second baptism would say that, no, they would, they would say every Christian has the Holy Spirit, but there's mm -hmm. just this extra thing that happens. Yeah. And, um, and as part of my rebuilding, I, I think it's the terminology that's really important. And I, I like that yeah. you make that distinction because um, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if this is wrong, but I think what you're saying, and certainly what I would say, is that there have been times in my life when I had experiences that I truly believe were the Holy Spirit in a very special way, something that was very unique. It was uh, maybe very, like you said, dynamic, or there was an experience of power, or um, I would even go so far as to say that when uh, there have been times when I've been in prayer and I was deeply impressed in my spirit to do a certain thing. In fact, yeah. um, part of my story that I don't think I've ever really told publicly before was that when I was uh, in just coming out of the deepest part of my faith crisis, mm -hmm. I hadn't really gone into the deep dive studies yet. Um, but I had this really strong impression in my spirit that the Lord wanted me to study. Now, when I was charismatic, you know, when I was back in the charismatic, I might have said, well, the Lord told me to study. That's probably how I would have worded it back then. With the corrections I've sort of made today and what I would be comfortable saying is that I truly believe that the Holy Spirit did lead me to study um, mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was going to study, but I just knew that was the path. Now that, you know, I could have heard that wrong. And I think ex the experience of my life has borne out that that probably was the Lord leading me in that direction. I want to be careful how I word it. Certainly yeah. no audible voice or anything like that. Which would be um, cool, by the way. I would love the audible voice. I'd yeah, take it yeah. <laughs> I don't know, though. I don't know. That might be kind of scary. But, um, but yeah, so I think it's the terminology because I do think— yeah. That, you know, in an, in an effort for unity here with people who are charismatic, when you hear charismatics say things like, well, the Lord told me to X, Y, Z, or, or say, I don't think any, hardly ever have I ever met anybody who actually meant they heard an audible voice and that like God, or like God wrote it on the wall or something like that. Mm -hmm. Typically, I think what they mean is that there was an impression they had in their spirit that they were supposed, and maybe they put that message in their own words or yeah. something like that. Um, I don't know. And then, but then there's certainly abuses of all of that, no doubt. Um, but that's important because I think that, um, that there, that's what I meant when I said I think charismatics and cessationists are a lot closer together than they may realize is because I think it's just semantics in some cases. Obviously, there's major differences of doctrine in other cases. But as far as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, I've never met a charismatic who would say somebody's not saved if they don't have the second, you know, what they would call the second baptism. And on the cessationist side of things, I've never met a cessationist who doesn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just they're they're wording yeah. it differently and, and yeah. defining it differently. So, you know, if you could just sum up your conclusion in yeah. just a very short summary, what, what would yeah. you say is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So I would say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit is that we are all united to the death and life of Christ. We are immersed 
as Romans 6 says, into the death and life of Jesus Christ. And this is the fountainhead, the source of our unity. Theologically, the way we apply that doctrine is that we believe that the Holy Spirit is active and alive today. I think this is one of the better parts of the Pentecostal charismatic tradition and a time in history when there was just sort of a dead orthodoxy or dead intellectualized faith. There was a desire. We need God to transform us. We need yeah. God to heal us. We are suffering. God, be here with us. And so the emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, who teaches, who guides, who instructs, who comforts, who encourages, who empowers, that way that the way that comes about, that we need that theology. And then the experience of that is what we end up living out for the rest of our life. And I think the best analogy that I, I used to use this years ago when I was doing evangelism uh, as an undergrad, uh, it was this sort of chocolate milk analogy. I don't know if you ever heard of this. One. No, I don't think so. Um, so think of the, think of what the Holy Spirit does like this. You know, we are we are this. Imagine we're a cup of of milk, right? And you take that old, you know, chocolate syrup and you squeeze it in, right? And then you stir it up. And then what happens after you let it sit for like 30 minutes? It like all settles down and then you have to stir it up again. And Paul says this to Timothy, stir up that gift that was within you. So the moment we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we have the fullness of God dwelling in us. There is no more of God. Peter, when Jesus, you know, was going to do the, wash the disciples' feet. He said, well, then wash my whole body. You know, if this is the only mm -hmm. way I can save you. He's, he's the, he's the proto-charismatic in my mind. He wants more and more. Well, if feet is good, I want more. Do, do, do the whole thing. And the charismatic would recognize there's something good, the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And they say, well, more and more and more and more. But the thing is, we don't need more. We have the fullness of God in us. The whole thing's been poured in from the moment we are saved in Jesus Christ. We have the fullness of Jesus, all of his power, all of his love, all of the glory of God dwelling in us. But life, we, we push God down. We suppress the work of God in our life. And we need not just one post-conversion experience or encounter with the Spirit. Mm. We need multiple mm -hmm. daily encounters mm -hmm. and experiences of the God where we stir up the Spirit that is in us, the fullness of God, so that when people see us, they don't they see the all the chocolatey goodness of the gospel, right? They don't see any part of us left. They just see the fullness and beauty of God. That's what it means to, to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is to have that fullness and immersion into Jesus Christ. And the encounters that we seek, which I encourage, which are great and fabulous for us, let's not use, we don't need that label of spirit baptism uh, to validate the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so it, this change of terminology shouldn't reshape people's life experience of what they had with the Spirit, but it yeah. does shape our ministry going forward so that we all know that we're unified, one body, That's one so people, good. and we can live that way. That's so good. How do we stir up the Spirit? You know, how do you stir that glass uh, of milk? <laughs> a big, giant theological spoon. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Now, you know, I, I think that there's multiple ways. One is certainly reading God's word. Uh, then that's that's it. The other is experiencing, seeking the, the 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 Holy Spirit in our life that He will speak to us. He's the He's the spoken word of God. He speaks today. His what He speaks will always align with what is written. But yet he speaks today. Um, living a life with the living word of Jesus Christ, he is the word manifest. So seeking to be, how do I live and follow in the life of Jesus? Uh, discovering God through the world around us. Nature is the manifest word of God. You know, God spoke, it came into existence. So when I explore nature and when I look at the world around me, I can see the goodness and glory of God. And then we know that the church is the, is the manifest word of God as, as well. The church is the living presence of Christ to our world. And Acts really teaches us the importance of that. And so being in community with mm. other spirit empowered people, people living with the strength of the gospel in their life and living that out, who can encourage us, who can refine us, who can challenge our thinking in ways that will help us be obedient, uh, then we can then be faithful to live that out ourselves. And so, you know, that holistic kind of approach to understanding what the word of God is in all those areas and then pursuing that word Mm -hmm. I'm pursuing, I think really the community side is so important to that too. I yeah. think for our culture today, the community 
communal aspect of our nature and recognizing that when we have differences, we can have disagreement. That's okay. Iron sharpens iron. We're going to make a few sparks. Things will happen, but we can still love each other if we are seeking to express and live out the unity that has already been given by the one gift, the Spirit of God. Mm, that's good. And I find too, like a couple of things that, that I do to sort of stir that, stir that milk up is yeah. um, <laughs> a couple of things. Like you said, nature, like just honestly, for me, prayer, my prayer life, mm. it's, it flows a lot more naturally when I'm moving. I don't know. That's just a personal mm. thing with me when I'm walking, uh, when I'm hiking, when I'm moving my body. I don't mm -hmm. know why. I just um, it puts me in a worshipful state and yeah. I can. So I'll I'll talk to the Lord while I walk and just and I think that, you know, maybe just some practical advice for our listeners and our mm -hmm. viewers is be honest with God. Tell him where you're at. You know, I always try to yeah. follow the pattern of the Lord's prayer and start mm -hmm. with some adoration and worship and go into my needs and repentance and try to have yeah. all of that that in there. But just being really honest, like I'll, I'll just sometimes say like, Lord, help me want to want to follow you. Help yeah. me even be motivated yeah. to want to stir the milk, you know, like, yeah. and just be honest I'm, with God. Yeah. Unplugging from the technology is a key thing. And I used to, mm. when I was in the gym a little more regularly than these days, um, I would, uh, I would use that time. I'd put in my headphones, but they were only on like sort of the noise canceling headphones. Mm. I didn't listen to stuff. I didn't do stuff. It was to sort of drown out everything else. And that was my prayer time. So I'd take however long I lifted, but that was my prayer time, my time to just seek yeah. God, be quiet. Uh, and I, I, that to me was some of the most prayerful time I'd have. Again, I think the sort of the physical exertion along yeah, with there's the something about focus, that mind body connection. I mean, we are, yeah. yeah, we are spirit um, and, and body. Yeah. We are material yeah. and immaterial. That's what we are as human yeah. beings. And so um, that's, I think that's something that uh, Christians can sometimes um, yeah. discount is the importance mm -hmm. of even the chemicals in our brains and all sorts of things play yeah. into how we feel and, and mm -hmm. all of that, not to get off on a totally different subject, but yeah. yeah. You That's know, moving, moving your body though, it can really help, um, mm -hmm. just even get the, get every blood flowing to your brain so you can think yeah. and you can pray. And, um, yeah. and then the other thing I was going to say too, is I think, um, really focused, uh, scripture memorization has really helped mm -hmm. me as well, because mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be praying and you can't, sometimes you can't think of something to pray about, or, you know, you feel like you're just repeating mm -hmm. yourself or that you're some kind of lawyer trying to convince God of something. Right. And that's when I'll go into thankfulness and I'll just talk, talk about the things I'm thankful for, but also mm -hmm. then, you know, there can be a time when you just then meditate on the word of God and try yeah. to memorize it. And as you try to memorize it, it really gets in, it really mm -hmm. gets into your, to your spirit. And so that's something I do as well. Um, boy, this, I mean, we, this has flown by, but I, I do want to ask you, I do want to bring in a little pushback because, um, I, and I've, this whole time we've been talking, I've been trying to find this verse and I can't find it, but there are two instances in the New Testament where it would almost appear that there's okay. like a second baptism happening. One of them is they had said they had been baptized into with, by John. So that's kind mm -hmm. of a different thing, yeah, but there is one that's okay. And, and do you know Acts the other one I'm talking about where Usually it almost... Acts 2 is the one okay. because the, they were all disciples and they say what well, they were because Jesus breathed on the disciples, the Holy that's Spirit right. before his ascension. And then in Acts 2, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. So that's Acts 2, especially, but then also Acts 19 are the two primary ones that deal with the that sort of, oh, it's definite, you know, post-conversion experience. Those are right. the two. Right. So, so this one in Acts 19, it says, uh, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, oh, this is it. Yeah. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Mm -hmm. They answered, yeah. no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So yeah. Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's. And he said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And then on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in, tongue, spoke in tongues mm -hmm. and prophesied. Yeah. And so um, often that, you're right, that is used as an example of like, look, here you have people who it says they believed. Yeah. So were they Christians? Were they not Christians? Did they need the baptism? How would you explain that, that passage? Yeah. So I would say that they are they are uh, believers in the Messiah, the promised one, but they had not understood that the Messiah had come and what that meant. Mm. 
So uh, in terms of the fullness of Christ. So he, here's here's what we can look at. Um, again, Acts, Acts 2, 8, 9, and 10 really go through the from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. So the uttermost parts of the world would be in Joppa, where uh, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. The Gentiles represent that it's that it's that part of the world where everybody's coming into that seaport town. The gospel is now for everybody, right? But then we circle back in Acts chapter 19, and 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 the story of the church comes full circle. We come back to somebody, you know, close to you know this, you know, Acts covers 30 years of history, so we're we're nearing you know several decades past, uh, you know, when John was even alive. Right. So we're decades past. Now, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have social media. There wasn't the nightly news. So who knows where these people had been traveling, gone, where they were, what they'd heard or not heard. So what we have in Acts chapter 19 is, I think, to the to the reader who is uh, the Jewish reader at the time. This is the the fullness that although the gospel has gone to the fullness of the world, it is still a gospel for Israel. I think that's what we see in Acts 19, why it's there at this point in, in, in the story of the church. That let's not forget that God has not taken this from you. He's given it to you, Israel, and shared it with the world as he promised Abraham he, that he would, that all people would be blessed through you. And so... Yes, the Gentiles are here now, but it is still for Israel. And so what we have in Acts chapter 19 is really anybody that would count, whether it would be Abraham, if he did, if Abraham would have still been alive at the time that Jesus came, he would say, well, I've heard, you know, I've heard of the Messiah. You know, what does that right. mean? Well, I haven't yeah. heard of Jesus. Any old, you have here an old covenant believer who hasn't understood the fullness of what has come with the new covenant that we have been, the promise of God has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And now God will get, make you participants in the death and life of Jesus Christ. And so they said, well, we have the water, but not the spirit. In other cases, that's exactly what we have in uh, Peter. We see him with Cornelius. Well, they had the spirit, but not the water. So it's the exact opposite. Mm. So what Acts is teaching us is that there's a unity between the water and spirit. They're meant to go together. The water symbolizes the reality of what happens internally through the spirit. But when the scripture says baptized, it really means both and, not either or. And so they're meant to be a unity that reflects our, our life in Christ. And so here we had the reverse of what we had at Cornelius with the Gentiles. Now we go back to an old covenant believer who's believed that the Messiah has come, but they haven't understood that this means that the Spirit is uh, what unites us to this promise of God. And so that's what we have in that, which Acts 19 then unifies makes complete the circle of what has happened throughout the whole scope of Acts. Mm. Okay, and there is there is one more that I just found, and this is the one that I think might even be the toughest one, because this is in the context of Simon the Magician. Mm. And um, so this yeah. was uh, Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And um, so it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 8, now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, mm -hmm. but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to talk about Simon again, but that's kind of interesting because it doesn't mention the baptism of John, but they had been baptized in the name yeah. of the Lord Jesus. So what's going on in this one? Yeah, and, and just... So folks, you know, the whole second half of my book, I go through, I have lengthy translations uh, of all of these passages. And I had to do my own translations on those only because publishers don't like it when you use their copyrighted Bibles. So, but I, part of the thing is we have to read all of these stories in context so they're not proof texting our way through these things. Okay. So I kind of guide it through that whole process mm -hmm. in the book. And so here's what, here's what we have happen here. So remember the ethnic prejudice that uh, consumed uh, the both the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus at the woman in the well, right? Everyone's you know scandalized, not because Jesus talks to a woman who is at the well, but she's a Samaritan. She's a half breed. She's you know the 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 compromisers, those who in the in the uh, period of the exile 
were 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 in the land, but they had intermarried with the with with the invaders, right? These are these are the people who are not. They have their own separate place of worship. They don't really worship Yahweh. They are they have their own false religion. So there's a lot of ethnic religious bias against the Samaritans, and we know that the the early church in Acts two, although they were great going house to house and breaking bread, they were all happy, but it wasn't. Uh, but they were not going out in faithfulness from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It wasn't until persecution in Acts chapter 6 that God actually brings on through who Saul, who would be Paul, and he stones Stephen to death, that it says, then they dispersed and the word of the Lord increased. That is, the church began to grow. So the church was happy just being the, bu the bunch of Jewish Christians now, Christ followers in Jerusalem. And until they were persecuted, they didn't go out. But they didn't fully comprehend that, okay, the gospel came to them. But remember, there is a way for the, the Gentile to be a, a God fear, right? They could, they could follow the Jewish practices, but never be fully Jewish, right? Never be fully of Israel. And so I think that that mentality was pervasive amongst the early Christians. Well, surely, yeah, the, the Samaritans can have the gospel, but they're never fully us. I think those old divisions were present. And so what you see is it's not until the apostles come down mm -hmm. and are eyewitnesses to the indwelling of the spirit, then what, did, what do we say happens there? Yeah, they're really actually one of us. They are Christian. They are Christ followers. So this whole, the point of the whole story is that they have received salvation in Jesus Christ. The point of the story isn't that they have received the post-conversion encounter with the Holy Spirit that given them endowment with the ability to speak in tongues. Matter of fact, the languages aren't mentioned everywhere all the time. It's very inconsistent because the whole point of this story is that we can't withhold fellowship with them. We are one body, one people, mm. regardless of the divisions that kept us apart in the past. And so this is one of those other passages where the apostles had to see it because they still wouldn't believe it. Because remember, it's almost it's years after this that Peter still didn't believe that the fullness of the gospel could come to the Gentiles. So even after this, he still had doubts that the Gentiles could be truly, fully Christian. So that's what mm -hmm. we're really seeing happen here. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. So we're about out of time here, but um, I just wonder if you could leave our audience with some encouragement. I know this is kind of, this can be an emotionally charged topic for a lot of people. So what what word would you leave us with? I know you've got a heart for unity behind this whole thing. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... I open up the whole book talking about like I've seen so much division and strife around the the theology of the Holy Spirit, and, and as somebody in pastoral ministry for twenty some years, um, I saw the shipwrecked faith that people had often because of issues surrounding the Holy Spirit and the issues of tongues. Now I get that uh, you know I had a guy on YouTube get mad at me because a guy did a summary of my book and he said I read your first chapter and you sound like the most arrogant guy that you're alone can solve the problems of the world and mm -hmm. bring unity and no one everyone else is evil and I'm like okay well that's not really what I'm saying what I am saying is that my heart and passion is to bring that unity where there has been division and I wrote this years ago and it's been rewritten multiple times and finally published in this current form uh, just last December and, and it is my heart. It is my passion that we would find a way to unify around the doctrine of the Holy Spirit so that our theology, the way we speak about the Spirit, and then our practice, the way we live the Spirit, the, live out the, the life of the Spirit, reinforces that unity that's been given by a gift. And I would encourage people to think through, you know, hopefully pick up the book, read it, uh, engage with any of these issues in the same way that... Um, you know, you don't have to give up your experience. It may, the book may require you to change some of the terminology you use. Uh, it may require you to kind of think of your experience uh, in a more biblical framework as opposed to a denominational framework. Uh, but let the scripture shape your experience, not your experience, shape the scripture. And in that way, we won't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't have to throw out the spirit of God just mm. because we have a right doctrine of, of the spirit and his work. And so, yeah, I do believe that this is a right doctrine. There is a right teaching about it. And without that teaching, though, I think what we lose is the foundation for our true unity in Jesus Christ. And then we end up 
dividing over the secondary and you know the third tier type issues because we lose our ultimate foundation for that unity in the person of uh, the Spirit of God. Well, I want to thank my guest, Joe Miller. Definitely pick up his book, follow his ministry. So thankful for his contribution to the body of Christ to help promote this unity. If you're interested in going deeper in theological topics, philosophical topics, apologetics topics, check out SES. People ask me all the time, what seminary, what Bible school do you recommend? And there's only one that I wholeheartedly recommend without any reservations, and that is Southern Evangelical Seminary. I'm currently a student. I am learning so much, loving my education. If you're looking for higher education, go to ses.edu slash Elisa. You can download a free ebook and find out what SES is all about. ses.edu slash Elisa. Well, thanks so much for watching today. If Again, if you're listening on audio platforms, rate and review, subscribe, comment, share on social media. All of that helps so much. And let's remember that as we pursue Christ, to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.